As we rise to read this morning's sermon text, I hope you have a Bible with you. It's always useful to have one in front of you as we study God's Word together. You can turn to the book of First Thessalonians. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you today, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 986. We began a series of studies through Paul's letters to this young church at Thessalonica last week, and we looked at all of chapter 1, and today we want to look at the first half, really, of, of chapter 2 in verses 1 through 12. So let me read those verses for us. And then I pray for God's blessing on our time, and we'll begin together. So hear now as God speaks to you through his perfect word. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. But our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands of apostles, as apostles of Jesus Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do pray that you would speak to us now. Just as so many centuries ago, the gospel came to the church at Thessalonica with power, with the Holy Spirit, not just in word, but with full conviction. We pray that that same spiritual power would belong to us in these moments as we study your wonderful word. So give us not only the spirit that we might hear, Give us the spirit that we might respond with obedience and repentance. Give me the spirit that I might preach as you have commissioned me to, that Christ would be exalted in our midst, and we pray it all in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Countless churches every year find themselves in the same situation. They're looking for a new pastor. And if you've ever been in a congregation that's gone through a season of transition, you know that ordinarily what happens is the congregation puts together a committee or some type of a team that's going to come together and begin to do that hard and often arduous work about finding the man that God has chosen to serve that congregation next. And invariably what happens early on in the search process is that group of people gets together and they'll put together something like a profile. What kind of a pastor do we think is necessary to serve this congregation, to increase its fruitfulness and to grow its, its faithfulness? 
And one recent congregation in our denomination found themselves in a similar spot. And before they even put the committee together, they gathered 40 people from the church, uh, packed them all into a room on a Saturday, and put together what they called an executive summary of the kind of man that they believe is necessary to serve their congregation. And this executive summary had essentially four major qualities and characteristics that they discerned were necessary for the man who would minister in their midst. The first of which is expository preaching. Uh, The second of which is visionary leadership. The third of which is expert management. And the fourth of which is an exegeter of the times. And of course, you should think about those categories and characteristics and examine them in the light of God's Word. And where perhaps might a committee or pastoral search team go to in God's Word if they wanted something of a crystal clear portrait of the kind of a pastor God uses to grow His church. Well, we come to the first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 today in what one scholar has called one of the richest descriptions of the work of a minister in all the New Testament is before us this morning. So if you weren't with us last week, there's a couple of things you need to know about this church at Thessalonica. It's one of the earliest letters written in the New Testament. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had planted the church there. This is a young church in many ways. It was an infant church that was struggling for faithfulness. Paul was concerned about them. He wanted to encourage them in their walk in Jesus Christ. And so he began pretty much all of chapter 1. And in some ways, it stretches all the way through chapter 3 with this prayer of thanksgiving for everything that God had done in the church there at Thessalonica. But if you glance back to last week's text, notice how the gospel came to this church of the Thessalonians in verse 6 and 7. Because Paul says, You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You therefore want to come to 1 Thessalonians thinking, according to Paul's language here, this is a model church. Uh, If you want to know what a church is supposed to be, how they're supposed to serve, how they're supposed to minister, well, you can pay attention to his instruction to the Thessalonians. And so we looked at that last week. We asked this question of what happens when God grows a church? And we said, well, uh, among other things, certainly in chapter 1, it's going to be a church that thrives in gratitude. It's going to be a church that knows the reality of God's grace. It's going to be a church that prizes uh, gospel uh, preaching What we want to turn to today in chapter 2, in some ways, is almost a necessary advancement on what happens when God grows a church, because Paul's going to turn our attention to the kind of ministry, or perhaps even more acutely, the kind of minister God uses to grow a church. And so I want this to be encouraging to many of you, because it's, it's a section of 1 Thessalonians that, of course, is uniquely directed to people like me certainly uniquely directed to all of your pastors and elders here in the church. But student says, I was reading the passage, and you can kind of go through it quite quickly. You can circle the number of times Paul uses this word, we, 13 times in 12 verses. We talked, we served, we lived, we spoke. So this isn't merely some kind of particular inspired example of the Apostle Paul's ministry. This is an ordinary life of leadership that God uses to grow his church. So that's our, our theme together this morning. The kind of ministry that God uses. Some of you need to know this truth because you're pursuing gospel ministry. 
Perhaps that's in a vocational sense. Others of you training to be an officer, an elder, or deacon in the church. Uh, Certainly I do hope some of you students and children might one day find the Spirit awakening your desire to that noble task of serving in the church. But even if you're not pursuing that kind of official, office-bearing, ministerial capacity, I think you're going to find a number of places along the way this morning that God means to encourage you in whatever your calling is as you lead whomever God has called you to lead. So we're going to notice, first of all, courage in the gospel. Secondly, care with the gospel. And then fourthly, conduct worthy of the gospel. Look again at verse 1, courage in the gospel. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. And what's clear from the outset here is Paul is not merely declaring the nature of his ministry there at Thessalonica. Paul seems to be defending the nature of his ministry there at Thessalonica. What's much less clear is why he's doing it. Uh, Throughout the centuries, most people have said because of the opponents that he had there at Thessalonica, Paul was made to get out of the town quite quickly. He left the church in its young state, so surely his opponents were there in Thessalonica, slandering his name, shaming their ministry as they seem to get out of Dodge with their tail tucked between their legs. And so Paul needs to make sure he's protecting the church from false views of their ministry. But if you glance over to verse 6 of chapter 3, What you see is that this report he gets back from Timothy about the Thessalonians is that they always remember us kindly, long to see us. So it doesn't seem like it's a church that's questioning the faithfulness of these servants. So maybe it's just Paul's wanting to give them a model of ministry to imitate. That's probably the most likely reason. Or perhaps even he knows that Opposition continues there in Thessalonica. Criticism is surely going to come because it always comes in the gospel ministry. And so he's wanting to prepare the church for the kind of ministry that they need to pursue, the kind of pastor they want to perpetuate in their midst. And he says, first of all, in verse 1, you know our coming to you was not in vain. That word vain just means empty. So kids, it's, it's different, isn't it, Paul says. Our ministry there in Thessalonica is different than most Olympians getting ready to return from Tokyo. They're going to leave empty-handed. But Paul doesn't leave Thessalonica empty-handed. There's a church where there didn't used to be a church. There's souls saved who used to worship idols. There are people growing in Christ's likeness. You know there was fruitfulness in your midst. And he wants them to know in verse 2, How exactly that came, reminding them it came through preaching. Look at verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of of much conflict. Oh, we mentioned this last week, didn't we? That just before planting the church in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas and his team, they were in Philippi, some 90 miles to the east of Thessalonica. And there they were falsely imprisoned, unjustly beaten and bruised, and they were run out of the city. And and Paul came into Thessalonica and preached in the synagogue right away for a number of weeks, but also faced this opposition, Jews whipping up the crowd into a frenzy, allowing the local magistrates to harry them out of the city once again. It was preaching that came in the midst of much opposition, not only, of course, in Philippi, but in Thessalonica also. And he says, we proclaimed that gospel boldly. Now, when I was growing up, my mother and grandmother used to make strawberry rhubarb pie with some degree of regularity. 
I don't know of anybody that eats rhubarb anymore. Uh, many of you might eat rhubarb for all I know, but rhubarb was this thing that we as children didn't know what to do with because it's this fleshy, stalky thing that you really have to cook down and season if it's ever going to be in some way edible. And farmers will grow something they call forced rhubarb, knowing the qualities to natural rhubarb. Uh, they grow it in these dark hothouses because it's in the midst of complete darkness that uniquely the plant grows sweet and tender. And isn't it true often that it's in the darkness and danger that Satan throws towards gospel ministries that God's word becomes sweet. God's word becomes tender. With boldness, Paul says, we preach the gospel of God to you. In the midst of this conflict, it's an athletic term. I just talked about obtaining the victory against your opponents. And remember, of course, what Paul has said about that very gospel of God in the previous couple of verses at the end of chapter 1. It's this good news that Jesus Christ was crucified, that he's resurrected, that he's returning. This is all necessary to save sinners like you from God's wrath to come. And the summons of the gospel, the call of the gospel, the command of the gospel is to turn from idols and turn to the living and, and true God. And with boldness in the face of conflict and in opposition, Paul says, this was what our ministry was all about. Courage in the gospel. And notice he wants to make sure they understand his motives were pure. Verse 3 and 4. For our appeal does not spring from any error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. You might know in the first century Roman world, it was an especially prized gift to be able to speak in public with rhetorical power. And so what often would happen is you would go to school for training in rhetoric, and what could happen in certain urban centers is you have these itinerant teachers show up. They start preaching. They start attracting a following. And then if you look just underneath the surface of their ministry, of their supposed curriculum, all they were trying to do is grab some kind of a following through deception, through this beguiling word, and they were wanting money. They were even wanting impure relationships. They were wanting shelter. And Paul says, you know about all that. And impurity, flattery, trickery, we didn't do any of that. Because we didn't want to please man. We wanted to please God. And I do hope you know, my Christian brothers and sisters, that you can please God. That it's possible for you to wake up tomorrow morning asking the question, Lord, how might I speak of Jesus Christ today and, and so please you? When was the last time you perhaps... Ask yourself such a question. Lord, how, how can I please you today in the calling you have given to me? You see, Paul continues in this theme, verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Uh, that latter part of verse 7 is more literally in the original speaking about weight. We might say something like, we could have thrown our weight around, but we didn't. And what Paul is saying there, it's normal. We, we know this from other New Testament letters. It's good, it's necessary, and, and right for ministers of the gospel to receive financial support for their ministry. 
of the gospel. Paul's going to say throughout his letter to the Thessalonians that we never did that. We don't want to place any stumbling block in front of you as though you might doubt our motives, as though you might wonder about our aims. So we worked hard day and night to su- survive on our own, to supply our own needs, that you might know, of course, that we came not making demands that belonged to us. This was their courage in the gospel. And if you read through this text another time later on today, what you would see is that it kind of hangs in this compare and contrast. Uh, we weren't like this, but we were like this. We didn't say this, but we, we did say this. We didn't live like this, but we did live like this. And it's that next contrast that gives us our next point, not just courage in the gospel, but care with the gospel. Look at verse 7. So, of course, we didn't make these demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. It's a fabulous image and metaphor when you think about it. Because here's the church at Thessalonica that's very much an infant church. And Paul says, we we didn't come demanding things of you. No, no, we, we came like a nursing mother picking up her baby that needs food. And those of you that have had the delight of perhaps being a nursing mother, others of you having seen a nursing mother, you know that there's something altogether unique to the relationship between the baby and the nursing mother. Isn't it all this tenderness and all this gentleness? That's why not infrequently when maybe the baby weans himself or herself off early, there's a sense of sadness that belongs to the nursing mother because the relationship is different. Perhaps the degree of gentleness is not immediately required. Paul says, that's how I've been with you. Completely gentle, like a nursing mother. Verse 8 continues, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. It makes sense, doesn't it? A man that has this gentle care for a local congregation would say that you have become very dear to us. Or other translations that would say that you have become very beloved to us. I know many of you have grown up in the church. Therefore, for years... You've been in local congregations. Some of you for decades and decades have been in local congregations. When was the last time that you felt the church of which you were a member was very dear to you, was beloved to you, not just a people that you tolerate and sometimes gather with, but very dear to you? Of course, there are reasons, this side of heaven, due to sinfulness in the congregation among the leadership, where it's hard to have a church that's dear to you. But I understand that's just Satan's strategies at work. Because Christ is always growing his church together in such a way that they would be able to say, likewise with this apostolic team, you have become very dear to us. Why am I going to wake up and go to church and gather with God's people on the Lord's Day, perhaps even in the evening as well? Well, of course I would. This is my beloved people. Why in the midst of difficulty, even disagreement, is everything still united and peaceful? Well, because this is my beloved congregation. This is courage in the gospel. This is care with the gospel. You see verse 9 through 12 also talks about conduct worthy of the gospel. I was talking with a friend in ministry not too long ago about a brother in the ministry that had disqualified himself due to uh, sin. 
And this a friend of mine served in the same area as that man did, and they had seen each other many times throughout the years, had the opportunity to interact with these kind of local associations and networks. And I expressed something that often gets expressed in such situations, something like, I can't believe that that happened to him. And my friend said, well, you know, for any of us that had been around him for any length of time, it was not at all surprising that that was what was going on in his life. Because there was such apparent inconsistency in his ministry. And what Paul now wants us to know, and of course is reminding the Thessalonians of in the final part of our text, is the utter complete consistency that belonged to his life. Look at verse 9 and 10. For remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and God also How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. And let me encourage you that wherever you find yourself in your calling, perhaps that's at home, perhaps that's in school, perhaps that is in a workplace, perhaps, of course, that's even in a church, uh, that you want to have that ambition that's true in this ministry of Paul and Silas and Timothy, that your righteousness, that your holiness, that your blamelessness would be evident to all, that you could say to the congregation, you know how we have served among you. You know how our conduct has kept in step with the Spirit, walked worthy of the gospel and God's calling, which is why we get to the second parental metaphor in verse 11 and 12. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God and calls you into his own kingdom and glory. At some level, you'll come through texts like this and you'll see that's great good news that God in his own sovereign grace and love has called you into his kingdom and glory. Now go live like it, is what the apostles often say. And and he says, oh, we have lived like that. Not just as as a nursing mother, Uh, But the language here is of an authoritative father. It was normal in the first century that fathers were in charge of the education and instruction of their kids. So, therefore, it's to be somewhat expected that Paul's saying, uh, not only were we gentle with you, tender with you, sweet with you, but we're strong with you too. Charging you, exhorting you, encouraging you. And understand that some of you in here today need to see the fullness of what it means to be in your place of following the Lord Jesus Christ, a spiritual mother and a father, in your spiritual grace. Some of you need a a heaping helping of gentleness. Be tender and sweet. Some of you perhaps need a heaping helping of encouragement, exhortation. You must command and charge brothers and sisters to walk worthy of the calling that they've received through the gospel God's revelation in Jesus Christ calling you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul's telling the Thessalonians and telling us, of course, as well, that there was courage in their ministry, gentle care in their ministry, and a life full of conduct that kept in step with the gospel they proclaimed. I was sitting with another pastor also not too long ago. And he was recalling in years past when he had been instrumental in putting together this conference that served so many pastors 
uh, around the world. And part of that conference, like so many pastors' conferences, had a huge bookstore. And there was a, a well-known pastor at the time whose books were selling by the thousands, whose sermons were being downloaded by the hundreds of thousands, uh, that called my friend up and said, why, why aren't you selling my books at your conference? And my friend said flatly, it's because I don't want to replicate your ministry. Because it was a ministry that has since fallen into complete shambles. Because it was built totally on self and not the Savior. It was quite prescient and discerning, my friend saying, I don't want to replicate your ministry. I know what it's replicating. And it's not the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, if ever there was a time you perhaps have to serve on a team or committee looking for a pastor, what kind of man must you find? This text gives you a lot. I want to give you more. The kind of points that you need to replicate for as we begin to close from our text. The first of which is that a minister, a ministry that God uses is one that serves with God-given authority. God-given authority. You see that, don't you? If you glance back at verse 4, Paul reminds them that we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. It's this authoritative stewardship of the good news of Jesus Christ, to preach it, to proclaim it, to promote it wherever you, you find yourself. And so therefore, there should be this quality, shouldn't there, in pastoral ministry and leaders in the church, that there is this component of authority. You charge, you encourage, you exhort, you speak, you declare. And isn't that increasingly hard in a culture like our own in the West, in the 21st century world, that really thinks authority exists just to be suspicious of, to be a skeptic towards. And if you understand this rightly, children, God has ordered society in such a way that there are all these spheres of authority that he uses as delegates of his own authority. And of course, those are meant for the good of God's people sometimes. It's so true and sad, isn't it, that sometimes they're meant to judge God's people. But here in the church, that means pastors, ministers, leaders, elders, a ministry that God uses serves with God's authority. Number two, a ministry that God uses is not afraid of difficulty. With the boldness of God, we proclaim the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. It's interesting to talk to pastors sometimes and you ask them, hey, what's the hardest day of your week? Because, you know, everyone's personality is different, circumstances, different context is different. Uh, but you may know this to be true that most pastors would tell you the worst day of the week is Monday. Uh, some people affectionately refer to it as Resignation Monday. <laughs> because you've just gotten through another week, and guess what? It's still hard. It's still difficult. Someone's still mad at you. Someone's still grumbled about what you did the day before. And you think, it's not worth it anymore. But if you ever pay attention to the apostles' ministry, wasn't utter fearlessness in the face of difficulty... They didn't expect anything other than opposition for their commitment to Jesus Christ. Of course, for this apostolic team, it meant torture, perhaps beatings, imprisonment, even martyrdom down the road for them. Well, that doesn't belong to any of us in here today. But I would imagine many of you know the feeling of serving Christ amidst opposition, amidst difficulty, the desire to wake up one day and say, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. 
But a ministry that God uses is fearless in the midst of difficulty. Number three, a ministry that God uses shows integrity and sincerity. Integrity and sincerity. Isn't that really all Paul is saying throughout this section? You know, you know, you know, God knows too that we are full of integrity towards you. Full of sincerity towards you. Even, of course, glance back to verse 8. We wanted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Every leader can't truly make headway for the cause of Christ until there is that integrity and sincerity and the ministry. So there's authority, so there's fearlessness in the midst of difficulty, there's integrity, there's sincerity, but here's the fourth and final thing I would give you today to sum it all up. A ministry that God uses is one of gospel simplicity. One of gospel simplicity. We need a pastor who's a visionary leader, an expert manager, an exegete of the culture. No, what a church needs as a man of Jesus Christ, because sinners need to be saved. Saints need to be sanctified. The church needs to be gospelized. This is a congregation, not a corporation. This is a church, not a business. This is a place where we rejoice in the gospel. So therefore, if you kind of peel these things back, don't you? Glance at the text, perhaps with different lenses. You realize all Paul is giving us, all Paul is giving you, a ministry that God uses is a ministry that mirrors that of Jesus Christ. For didn't he come with authority? With such authority that it struck people out of their minds, his teaching. A ministry of such gentleness. He wept over Jerusalem who rejected him. As a mother hen, he says, I would have gathered you into my arms. A ministry of such purity and integrity that he goes to the cross at Calvary, spilling blood that is completely spotless. For sinners like you and me. So just as the dawning of the sunrise calls forth a new day. A ministry that God uses calls forth the son of righteousness. To rise with healing in his wings upon God's people. That they might know the gospel. That they might love it. That they too might be called into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask you to minister this truth to us in the various ways in which we need it. Lord, some of us need courage. Some of us need uniquely care. We all know we want to walk worthy with conduct according to your truth. So do help this sermon, this preaching, not to be one that merely comes with word, but with power, with Holy Spirit and full conviction that we too might repent and turn from idols to serve you who is the living and true God. And we pray all these things through Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.